Morning. Morning. All right, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to call you our Father, and we're so thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come to earth uh, to not only represent you, but to win us back to love and trust and to provide everything we need for eternal salvation. We ask that your Spirit will join us today and that you will enlighten our minds, that we can differentiate the truth from the air, and we can grow into your kingdom of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly Daniel, and the, and the title is From Confession to Consolation, and the memory verse is from Daniel 9.19, and it reads uh, from the New King James is the following, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act, do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. So, this prayer of Daniel, what's he praying for? He has an agenda in his prayer. He has a goal. He's an outcome. He wants to see something occur. What's he praying for? He wants the city of Jerusalem restored. He, he wants the city of Jerusalem restored as a, a, as a structure? Or he wants the people set free to return and rebuild? The, the, so it's not just the structure. It's the city of the, the, the people of God returning, yes? yes? Yeah. So is there a lesson in this for us, in this prayer of Daniel? Is there a lesson for us beyond simply... Praying to God and trusting Him to deliver. Is there something more than that principle of we have problems, let's pray to God and look for His deliverance? Is, is there something more precise, more specific? Well, remember we talked about it here before. The Old Testament is not only recording the lives of real historic people who lived and did real historic stuff, but these lives are often selected because they not only talk about the people and what they did, but they represent something in a larger reality. They're a lesson book for us to learn from, an object lesson. And so do you see an object lesson in Daniel? Well, let's look at that. Daniel was a captive in a foreign land. Do we ever have this idea that we are in the world but not of the world? We're captive in a world of sin? Daniel trusted God with his life and God protected him. And those people of God on earth today are to trust him with their lives and he ultimately eternally protects us and sometimes physically protects us too. Daniel studied scriptures and understood a time had come for Israel to be set free and return to Jerusalem. Do we study scripture and in our studies have we come to understand that we're in a time in human history when it's time for God to act to set us free from a world of sin and bring us to the new Jerusalem. Do we see that parallel? Daniel understood that people, the people of God in his day, had failed in their mission. And they failed precisely and specifically because they accepted false views about God, that God was like Baal, an imperial dictator who required appeasement, and thus they misrepresented God. And you can read this through all the Old Testament prophets of how they keep misrepresenting God in, in the way that they were worshiping the false, view, the false gods. Do we understand as Christians that we have failed in our mission by accepting an imperial law lie about God which makes him into the image of Baal? And thus we've misrepresented God as Christians, Christian community, or do we believe, no, 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 Jennings, you're wrong, you're wrong. We have taken the gospel to the world. We, the Christian, Christian Christianity has taken the good news about God to the world. 
Well, we're going to explore that in just a second. Daniel confesses the failings of, of the people and asks God to act to bring about the end result. Do we as Christians need to confess that we, throughout history, have misrepresented God as an imperial dictator? We've gone to the Crusades, we've gone to the Inquisition, we've uh, used imperialistic views. We still teach today ideas and doctrines that make God out to be the source of pain and suffering from whom we need to be protected. Do Do we confess that we've misrepresented his character? Or does the Christian community defend that view? As we think about this, why has God delayed the second coming of Christ? Because the truth hasn't gone around the world. She says, because the truth hasn't gone around the world. And it says, of course, in Peter, God is not slow in keeping his promises. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But, but he delays or waits, not wanting anyone to be lost. Okay, and, and so is there a connection with the truth being presented and the, the saving of people or the lack of truth and the losing of people that are connected? So what has prevented people from coming to the knowledge of God for salvation? Would it be a false gospel? Since I've come into this ministry, my prayer, especially for my kids, because I raised my kids with a legalistic God, one that demanded order. And um, my prayer now is for God to reveal the lies that I've told them and let me, as much as I can, represent the truth and bring people into their life that will represent what love really is because they were brought up as a dictator. If you could travel anywhere in the world, do you think we could find very many people who have never heard of Christianity? Very many that have never heard of Christianity. I don't think so. I think most people in the world have heard of Christianity, of Judaism, of of Islam, and Buddhism. I think most people have heard of those things. So what is the gospel that Christians think they're taking to the world? And and, and if you ask people, what do you understand Christianity to be? Well, Paul talks to Timothy at the end of, he writes to Timothy, he says at the end of time, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People be lovers of themselves, they'll be abusers of others, all types of vile and wicked things, having a form of godliness but denying the power. He says that this time in human history, there'll be these godly worshiping people but have no power and they don't live godly. One of the founders of the SDA church, and the SDA church came along seeing itself as the continuation and advancement of the Reformation. The Reformation is this idea Christianity has been corrupted. Christianity has, has been infected with distortions about God, misrepresenting God, abusing others, not loving others. And so the Reformation came along, and it moved forward over hundreds of years, and the Adventist church saw itself as continuing that vision of reforming Christianity, to get people back to worship God as he designed. And one of the founders of the Adventist church wrote in Christ Object Lessons the following, It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing a knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Pause. Okay, we have a gospel message that are going to illuminate people and it's going to save them. And if you went to most Christians, evangelicals, and said, what would that message be? Jesus paid the price so the Father won't have to kill you for your sins. This is what this author says. Illuminating in his power, um, uh, saving in his power. The next, next words. His character is to be made known. 
Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Is, is, is that the way Christianity has presented itself to the world? A self-sacrificing, loving God. So, do we believe the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of love, of the creator-designer, whose laws are the laws upon which reality are built, has gone to the world? Or instead, is Christianity taken an imperial Roman dictator God who makes up rules and must punish rule-breakers to the world? Well, from the book Great Controversy, I read this this week, and I just thought I had to kind of bring it into the lesson. Just one paragraph, we'll unpack it, page 569. It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the great controversy. His sophistry lessens the obligation of the divine law and gives men license to sin. Pause. Right there. Think that through. Okay. How is, how is it that Satan's view, which is sophistry, it's deception, it's distortion, it's misrepresentation, how is his view um, lessen our sense of obligation to the law of God and give us this sense of freedom to sin? How does it do that? Functionally, how does that work? So she says, it puts it outside of ourself. It's not something that's happening in me. It's a legal process happening in a mechanism somewhere in a courtroom somewhere, number one. And, and, and how is it that Satan is able to get us to conceive of God's law being outside of us? There's another lie that precedes that. It's something we hammer over and over in this class. How do you understand the nature of law? Do you, when you hear law, do you think law of gravity, laws of physics, laws of health, the protocols upon which reality are built? That's what you think when you hear law. Or do you hear system of rules like humans make up? System of rules like humans make up. Is that what you hear? See, once we accept the idea that God's laws function no different than what you and I can make up, See, we can't build space, time, energy, matter, life. We can't build it. We can't create reality. God is the creator. His laws are those laws upon which reality itself operates. We can't do it. So we make up rules. We call them laws. But then we threaten to punish people for breaking them. That's how we operate. And and in, in a human world of sin, it is the highest level of, quote, justice we can achieve. No one is above the law. Yeah, we've heard that a lot, but we haven't seen it a lot, have we? No. When you have imperial law rules, then you can have all types of loopholes and exceptions and behind-the-scenes manipulation. But if you have three people of different religious backgrounds and they all jump off the Empire State Building together, does gravity treat them differently? No, God's laws never discriminate. They're constants on how reality works, okay? So how does Satan's sophistry lessen the obligation of the divine law? By getting people to believe that God's laws are simply rules. Sin is breaking a rule. You're in legal trouble. we We couldn't do anything about it. Jesus came. He took our punishment upon himself. He paid the legal debt. That legal debt was accounted for in a record book in heaven, and all my sins are paid, so I don't have to actually live a life. In fact, I can't live a sinless life. Only Jesus can live a sinless 
this life. I don't, I'm not obliged to live in harmony with the laws of God. I'm obliged to get my payment made so I can still live a reprobate life. As long as I claim Jesus is my Savior, I'm good. This is Satan's sophistry. Gives man license to sin. Continue on with the quote. At the same time, Satan causes them to cherish false conceptions of God so that they regard him with fear and hate rather than with love. Why? Because once you accept the imposed law idea, if God's law, just let's go down that box, let's, let's step into that world. God's law in this world functions no different than the laws that humans make up. It's a system of rules. Now, they're righteous rules, and they're perfect rules, but they're still just made-up rules. In that world, what does justice require if somebody breaks them? Every sin must be punished. That's a quote out of Desire of Ages 762. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God cannot be obeyed. If man should um, deviate from the law of God, um, he, uh, God could not uh, be just and forgive him. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Desire of Ages 762. So in this world that God's law works like our law, you have to punish sin. You have to punish the break of the law. Because if you don't punish, well, the, you just get away with it. There's no, there's no justice. There's no fairness. That's the lie. And thus we come to view the person who inflicts the punishment as the one we need protection from. We know he loves us, but he is also just. And if he's also just, then he has to kill. And, and, and of course, if you've done really bad stuff... He doesn't just kill you. He tortures you before he kills you. And so what do we need? We need an advocate. We need a representative. We need somebody to stand between us and God, to plead to him, to influence him, to present him with something, to assuage his wrath, to propitiate his anger. Because if we don't have that person standing between us, we're going to get into intercession in the lesson in a little bit, then that righteous and holy God, he'll have to vent his cosmic plasmic anger on us and consume us yeah this is the corruption that satan has got us to believe in it all roots in this idea that god's law works like human law and if we under uh, understand god is the creator and his laws are design laws we understand that anytime you deviate from god's design laws you damage yourself you take yourself out of harmony with life and God doesn't have to do anything for us to die. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction. God has to act to keep us from dying. So God so loved the world, he sent his son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3.17. So your view of law changes everything. Satan's sophistry gets us to think of God's law as imposed, and then it corrupts our, our uh, view of God. Continuing on with the quote, the cruelty inherent in Satan's own character is attributed to the creator. It is embodied in the systems of religion and expressed in modes of worship. Did you just hear that? Satan's character is embodied in the systems of religion and our modes of worship. How? This imperialistic thing in which we require to go to God with the blood of a human sacrifice in order to get the God not to use his power to hurt us. That's paganism. That's Satan's view. Linda. Well, from a little bit earlier, I like what you had said another time about what is justice for the person who's been murdered. Justice is getting his life back again. It doesn't help that person if someone else is, pub is punished, for even if they're the ones that killed him. What justice is for him is getting his life back. 
And that is the biblical justice if you read in Old Testament. It's always restoring, healing, regenerating, delivering the oppressed. You'll never find Bible justice as punishing the oppressor. And, that, and there's a reason for that. When you understand design law, God never has to use power to bring punishment on those who break the law. You don't have to use power of the state to punish cigarette smokers. You don't have to do it. There's an inherent punishment. And every one of God's design laws are like this. So continue on with the quote. And this is the last sentence in the quote. Thus the minds of men, by what? By bringing into our religious systems and expressions of worship Satan's character, and we do that by accepting the lie God's law works like human law, but doing that, this is what happens. Thus the minds of men are blinded, and Satan secures them as his agents to war against God. By perverted conceptions of the divine attributes, heathen nations were led to believe human sacrifice necessary to secure the favor of the deity. That's heathen nations. That's paganism she's talking about. But let me ask you this. What about Christianity today? Is this not true for the Christian groups that believe that our God requires the blood of a human sacrifice in order to earn or merit his favor? If you're confused by that, let me remind you who Baal was. In, in, in ancient times, during the time of Israel, when you read about Baal in the Bible and how they're being condemned, the God of Baal, this Baal of the Old Testament, Baal was the son of El. E-L, El, as in Elohim or El Shaddai. El is the father, Baal is the son. Baal was the God of creation who built um, nature, who was the god of thunder, who brought the weather, who brought the harvest. Baal, in their pantheon uh, and belief system, would fight against the great serpent Leviathan, and he also v- fought against Moat, which is the god of death. In Baal's fighting against Moat, the god of death, Baal would die and rise again to bring life to the land. Now, what is wrong with you worshiping a god who is the son of the father? who is the creator, who brings the weather and brings food and brings um, the harvest to us, who fights the serpent, who fights against death, who dies for us and rises again. What's wrong with worshiping? This was Baal. What's wrong with worshiping Baal? He required a sacrifice to appease to bring. He had to appease him. This is exactly right. Baal required offerings and sacrifices in order to merit grace, forgiveness, mercy, beneficence from him. That's what he required. Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, God of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to all the Christians who worship a God that requires the blood of a human sacrifice to be offered to him in order not to use his power to hurt us. That's Baal worship. And that's why the Bible prophesies before the great and coming day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. Not the physical person Elijah, but the people who represent what Elijah did and what did Elijah do at Carmel. Elijah stood up and said, if God is like Baal, worship him. But if God is like Yahweh, worship him. And so at this time in human history, we were to give a message that says, be in awe of God. 
Because the good news, the eternal good news, here's the eternal, the good news of all eternity, good news past, good news future has come. So be in awe of him and reveal the good news because the time in human history has come for people to judge. The hour of his judgment has come. They are for us to decide, is God like Baal or is God like Yahweh? Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Worship our creator God. Reject this imperialistic legal thing. It's a corruption. It has a form of godliness, no power. This Tuesday, I was riding to work, and in my car, I was listening to local Christian radio. When a well-known Christian evangelist came on with a short homily, which said in his homily that all of us are under God's death penalty. And Jesus took the death and all the sin of the world upon himself in order to free us from God's death penalty so that God could forgive us and not be required to punish us. He made it clear that the problem with sin, in his view, is that we are in legal trouble with God and that God, in order to be just, must use his power to inflict punishment upon those who would not otherwise reap it. Justice requires him to send them to hell unless they have their sins paid for by Jesus. Sin is rule-breaking, and the rule-giver must receive a payment for the broken rules. This is paganism. This is Baal worship. Christianity, just like in the time of Daniel, Daniel confessed, we have failed you, Lord. We have failed in our mission. We have not represented you rightly. And Christianity needs to make the same confession. We have misrepresented you. We have attributed to you the character qualities of the evil one. And we need to make that confession. And we need to ask God like Daniel did, but the time in human history has come. Pour out your spirit. Bring about the end result. Move out of the way the obstacles for this lightning, this enlightening message to go to the world. Bring up and raise up workers in the field that can tell this true message so that the minds and hearts of people can be set free. So are we making that prayer? I encourage you. Let's make that prayer together. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we confess that we, as a Christian community around this world, have not represented you rightly. The church worldwide has been infected with this imperial lie. And day after day, the world is is just seduced into this corruption to think that you're our enemy who must be paid the blood of a human sacrifice not to hurt us. Lord, we ask for the pouring of your spirit to empower, to enlighten, to enable us to tell the truth, to call people back, to worship our wonderful God of love, the creator God, who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Remove the obstacles to this message. Pour out your spirit. May you come soon. your holy name, amen. Let's go on to Sunday's lesson. The lesson points out that Daniel was a student of scripture and as such was aware of the time of Jeremiah's 70-year prophecy was coming to an end. Daniel was looking for God to act. If we read the last paragraph, it says, As we approach the last days of earth history, we need more than ever to study and live according according to God's word. 
Only scripture can provide us with an authoritative explanation of the world we live in. After all, scripture tells us the story of the great controversy between good and evil and thus reveals that human history will close with the obliteration of evil and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. The more we study the scripture, the better we can understand the contemporary situation of the world and our place in it, as well as our reasons for the hope amid a world that offers none. Are we to be like Daniel and study God's word? I think so, yes, we'd all agree with that. But what are we studying for? For what is the purpose of our study? Do we study to know the right rules or know the right God? Well, the Jews did the Jews in Christ's time know which day of the week was the Sabbath? They knew the right day? Did they know the Lord of the day? Hmm. Do we study to know the right rituals or know the right realities? Did the Jews in Christ's day know the ritual of circumcision? Did they know the reality to which circumcision pointed? Mm -mm. Do we study to know the right predictions or to know the right principles and purposes? Did the Jews in Christ's day, time of Herod, know the prediction of where the Messiah was going to be born? They knew the right prediction. Did they know the right purpose of Christ being born and the right principles of God's kingdom? Uh, I'm making a, a point here. I hope you're seeing it. Many people study scripture and they study for rules, rituals, and predictions. And they don't know the God of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, and they don't know the realities of how uh, uh, the world operates and they don't understand God's purposes and principles. And thus, even though they study all these things, they end up just like the Jews 2,000 years ago, enemies of God. Ken, somebody over here? It occurs to me that most people who have studied these things very, very deeply have come up with the idea that Judaism was somehow a refinement of the Canaanite traditions and customs, that it was all developed within society, within that civilization. And many people, even at the college over here, Southern Adventist University, with, with their archaeological department, and I'm not accusing any individual personally, but I'm saying that they have a display over there which... This, you know, brings out all these things that come from the Middle East, the Bronze Age, and so on. Most people who have studied these things, unless they are convinced that God is the Creator and that there is a there is a a line going right straight through of inspiration from God, they think that society has developed all these things. Yes, yes, they do. And this is part of the deception. And so there are facts. Fact. Here's what Judaism taught. Here's what the Scripture says. These are the facts of what's written in Scripture. Okay? And then there's the historical facts of, of the Canaanite pantheon of gods and so forth. And so there's facts. And then there are interpretations of facts. One interpretation is, well, there is no God. Judaism just evolved from the Canaanite pantheon and developed and refined it in their own way to work for them, to help them become more elitist and narcissistic, that God was on their side, because everybody in that time believed God was on their side. And so it's just a refinement of the... That's one interpretation of the facts. And that interpretation denies the great controversy. Once you understand the great controversy, that there are actually um, good forces 
God and the good angels and, and Satan and the evil angels battling on planet earth for the hearts and minds of men, then you understand that every truth that God gives, every truth that he gives, Satan has multiple lies. And, and, and the most powerful truths, excuse me, the, the most powerful lies are the ones that are mostly true. As I read in one of the books that I was reading, I can't remember which book it was in, but uh, the, in the book it said, uh, a demon will tell you nine truths to get you to believe one lie. And that's right. So, so the, the, the Baal worship that I showed you was so close to the true, wasn't it? And the reason it's close to the true is because Satan wants to introduce the one lie that God operates like Satan, making up rules like a created being and becoming the inflictor of pain and suffering from who you need to be protected because if you believe that one lie, you can't trust him. Yes. And if you read through the Bible, um, for example, if you're studying the Bible like we're told to do, let's say you come across Isaiah thirteen eleven. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty. I will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Simple, simple way to process that. First question you ask, what law lens are you reading it through? If you read it through imposed law, then you read it as God taking action to bring punishment. If you read it through design law, what does wrath do to somebody? What, uh, parents, you have children who've gone into wild living. You've taught them the laws of health. You've taught them not to smoke, not to drink, not to abuse drugs. You've taught them these principles upon which health is built. But they decide to rebel, and they go into this wild living. They drink a fifth of vodka a day. They, they're in, and, and you've intervened multiple times. You've had family sessions. You've had these, uh, the crisis moment. You've sent them away to rehab programs and detox programs, but they go right back into it over and over and over again. What's the only course left to you? How about if they're in liver failure now? On their second liver, because they've already got a donor liver and they've, and they've drank that one to failure. What, what will love require of you? To let them go. And, and if you let them go, what happens to them? Are you using power to torture and kill them? No, and this is what, this is what God's wrath is. Okay, so Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then Paul goes on to tell you five times why it comes. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the knowledge of God for, for images made with their own hands. They preferred, uh, they, they did not think it um, uh, you know, worthwhile, to, it says it three different ways, but they didn't, didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Therefore, verse 24, 26, 28, God gave them up. God let them go. God set them free. This is God's wrath. And under design law, when the life giver lets go of those who insist on going their own way, what happens to them? They die. They suffer and they die. Not as an infliction, but as the result of being out of harmony with how life is built. Now, if you're dealing, though, with people who are so immature that they can't understand that reality, like your children who don't understand that if they don't brush their teeth, they're going to get cavities, they're going to suffer. Your children, your three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, they don't understand what might you? What kind of language might you have to use with the children? If you don't do this, you're going to get punished. That's what you're reading in Isaiah. These people are bent on pagan Baal worship. 
And one of the design laws is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. And we become neurobiologically and characterologically like what we esteem and worship. And so the more they worship Baal, the darker their minds became. And so it says in Jeremiah, you worshiped worthless things and became yourself worthless because that's the natural consequence of rejecting truth. Your mind becomes darkened. And so when you're dealing with people who've already hardened their heart, darkened their mind, don't understand the basic principles of design law and how reality works, then you have to speak a language a little child can understand. If you don't turn around, I'm going to spank your bottom. And that's what you're reading here. But sadly, many of the people today, having accepted the lie, the presumption, before they even get to the scripture, they already know God's law works like our law. And so when they read that, see, God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering. I've got to go on, and we're going to come more to that when we come to some things here in a moment in Israel's history. talks about sin being obliterated in the passage. Can sin be obliterated by the use of might and physical power? Can it? If God were to use, this passage that she just read, if God were to use fire to melt the entire earth and every sinner in it to nothingness, would that eradicate sin? Is sin a physical element that can be physically eliminated? Is it made out of molecules? This is a critical for people to understand because the imperial law lie has God using physical power to eradicate sin, which it cannot do. It alleges that sin must be punished and that God, in order to be just, will use power to torment and kill sinners and thus eradicate them and somehow eradicate sin. This is physical power getting rid of sinners, which God can do. God can use physical power to get rid of sinners. But if he does it, will he get rid of sin? And if you understand design law, you understand why. Let me read something out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. There is a power. There is a power being used. But what power is prevailing? Because what does truth destroy? What does love destroy? Fear Fear and selfishness. That's right. And God wants to destroy lies out of your head that, that cause you to distrust. So, you know, the analogy we've used before, you believe a lie that your spouse is having an affair, but they're not, but you believe they are. What happens in your heart if you believe your spouse is cheating? But they're not, but you believe they are. Who's changed by that lie? Is your spouse, the loyal, faithful spouse, changed? No, you're changed. You have more fear. You have distrust. You may act selfishly to protect yourself from what you believe is an exploitation that's not actually happening. The only thing that's going to set you free is the truth will set you free. It will destroy the lie. will restore trust. And when the trust is restored, then the parties can have love flow in their hearts again. And love takes away the fear and the selfishness. Later in the same chapter, the author picks up with a quote that we used, uh, from a, uh, picks up from a quote that we used last week's lesson. And, and we're going to kind of do this. this. This is very powerful. Starts in page 763. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven. What was the warfare against, according to this focus? 
the law of God. The warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will continue until the end of time. What law? Did the warfare in heaven, Adventists need to think this through really carefully. When Satan began his warfare in heaven, was an attack on the Sabbath. Did the Sabbath even yet exist? It did not. And if we focus at the end of time, that the warfare at the end of time is a question simply and only of the Sabbath, we're missing the entire focus of the war. We're being tricked. The Jews that put Christ on the cross wanted him off by sunset. Why? To keep the Sabbath. They weren't confused about the day of the week. They were completely seduced to believing the lie about the law, though. And if we don't understand the truth about the law, then we'll be like the Jews who will reject Christ while we keep the Sabbath. So, the warfare against God's law began in heaven will be continued to the end of time. How could Satan war in heaven against God's law? Think that through. Do you think Satan went into a legislative body and lobbied behind the scenes and other things? Do you think this is what he was doing? I mean, in other words, there was no legislative bodies that he was trying to introduce bills to, was he? Can Satan, then or now, actually change God's law? Can you? So how would he war against God's law if he can't change it? How can he war against it? Change our view of it. Change our view of it. Get us to conceive of it in a way that's not true. To get angels to believe God's laws are simply imposed rules, and suddenly God's a rule giver and an enforcer that can hurt us if we don't do his rules, rather than seeing them as design protocols. Keep me on with the quote. Every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to decide to be decided by the whole world. Pause right there. What law lens do you hear that sentence through? How many of you grew up in Adventism or some other branch of Christianity with the idea that God's law was like human law, a system of rules that you've got to keep? And then when you read this, well, the question is obedience or disobedience. Oh, man, that's, that's perfectionism. Oh, man, I've got to obey. Oh, that's stressful. Oh, I can't do it. Oh, oh, how terrifying. How many grew up that way? Yes, this is exactly the, because you're reading that through the lie that God's law works like human law. When you understand design law and you understand his laws are like the law of respiration, law of respiration, if you want to live, you've got to breathe. It's a law. And you can transgress it, tie a plastic bag over your head, hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself. You can transgress the law, but the wages of that are... And so when you say obedience or disobedience is the question, it's how many are willing to allow God to restore them to harmony with life? That's it. And when he finishes his work in us, it will be easy it will be as easy to love others and live in harmony with his law as it is to breathe. And I see some physicians in the room, healthcare providers. For the healthy people, breathing is not difficult. But have any of you ever had somebody who was really diseased, diseased so bad in their lungs, in their pulmonary functions, that they actually couldn't even breathe on their own? They had to have artificial respiration or they were going to die. That's our, that's our state after Adam. Our natural capacity for love and for living in harmony is broken. But God is working for those who trust him to restore in us those capacities. I'll write my law on your registry in heaven. No, on your heart and mind. 
on your heart and mind. I'll make you new. You'll be reborn. Keep, keep going with the quote. All will, uh, so, uh, well, obedience, obedience or disobedience be the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. As I'm making this idea between design law and, and imposed law, do you see how clear this is? But when you uh, read statements like this, when you already believe God's law works like our law, then you read into it things like this. All men will be called to choose between what day they go to church on. That's not what it says. The law of God versus the laws of men. God's laws are design laws. Man's laws are imposed rules. Completely different. And the way they're enforced is different. Here, the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Notice the next quote, next next sentence. Two classes. Every character will be fully developed. How is character developed? Okay, now this is important because I've been getting some emails lately from people who don't like what, I, what we put in our um, Heavenly Sanctuary Investigative Judgment Manual uh, about uh, character, um, people being perfected in the investigative judgment for those who trusted God. They don't like it because they have the view that character is only developed by your work. Now it's true. Your character can't be developed without your participation and your choosing. But your choosing cannot develop your character alone. And what is it we're primarily choosing? We're choosing to engage with God and to yoke up with him in a trust bond of love. That's what we're choosing. And then by beholding him, we're changed. And then it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And he wills and do, does in us according to his good pleasure. And a supernatural power works in us to give us new ideas, new conceptions, new desires, new motives. And this, this reforming of our hearts for those who choose day by day to participate and walk with God and love what he loves is part of that process. But it requires the two to work together. God can't save a person against their will, and a person cannot choose to save themselves against their will. So as we choose the laws of God, we're one back to trust, and we participate in his kingdom, and we go stronger in godliness. But there's always the indwelling spirit that is a part of that process. You're never really choosing anything of God on your own. The desire, the enlightenment, the wisdom, the discernment, all those things are the Holy Spirit's working that you're left free, but when you choose it, you're choosing to link up with God. That's why he used the grafting of the, of the vine into the branches, because he's, he's, uh, you know, he's the one that gives us the source of everything. Our job is to link up. That's right. That's right. Every character will be fully developed, and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. That's our choice. We do get that choice. But we don't have the power to fix ourselves. That power is from the Lord working in us as we choose to stay in line with loyalty. Continuing on. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Pause. How does he vindicate his law? This is very important. Because this infection in Christianity teaches these doctrines in all branches of Christianity that I've seen that God's vindication of his law is actually sustaining Satan's lie and undermining his law. When you think about vindicating his law, what law lens are you looking through? 
If you think vindicating law means he uses his power to finally put down those rebellious people, to inflict the right punishment and ultimately kill them, then you've just supported the lie that God's law is as Satan says. He hadn't vindicated. He just supported Satan, validated Satan, because that's not how his law works. That was the same, Satan's charges. And this is what the Christian community is teaching. And they're preparing the world to meet Satan impersonating Christ who will come and do that very thing. Satan and all who have joined him in rebellion will be cut off. Notice, what happens to them? Cut off. What happens to a branch that's cut off from the vine? Does the vine have to use power to kill the branch? No. And what causes the branches to be cut off? Who's taking the action to cut off the branches? We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. Pardon? Yes. This is, he says, I make the choice. And, 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 and persisting in sin separates one from God, cuts themselves off from the channel of blessing, cuts themselves off from the channel, and the sure result is ruin and death. That's um, First Selected Messages, page uh, 238, I believe. Yeah. So the cutting off. We're, we cut ourselves off. Who cuts you? If you tie a plastic bag over your head and you transgress the law of respiration, who cuts you off from oxygen? You cut yourself off. And so Satan and all who have joined him will, in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish root and branch. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. What is arbitrary power? Well, I don't know, maybe say giving somebody 40 months in jail for, um, you know, lying uh, in an investigation. 40 months is an arbitrary use of power. Arguing that it should be nine years instead of 40 months, that's an arbitrary use of power. Okay? Dying from cutting yourself off from oxygen, no, that's not arbitrary. That's the unavoidable consequence of being out of harmony with how reality works. Any infliction of a punishment that is not inherently built in is an arbitrary use of power. Saw a hand somewhere. Yes. That's the statement in Stage of Christ. It says, it is by no arbitrary decree from God that the wicked are excluded from heaven. That's right. Excluded from heaven by their own unfitness for it. Same same thing. That's exactly right. Well said. Thank you. And continuing on with the quote, the rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. Now, that's one of the design laws, sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. Design law. God, the fountain of life, God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. I didn't even have to go to that other quote. It's right here. He is alienated from the life of God. Christ says, all that hate me love death. Do you see design law in this? God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with them place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence to them is a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Why do they die? Why? 
an infliction from God. He doesn't want them to be with him. He's angry. He's wrathful. Jesus stopped his intercession in heaven and God couldn't restrain himself anymore. Those anger management classes just uh, didn't work. Yes. He's grieving at the time. He's not punishing them. They're punishing themselves. It's breaking his heart that they don't want to come in. Yes. It's the same attitude a parent has for that child dying of liver failure who would not get in recovery. Same attitude. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels in heaven did not understand this. We're asking the question. Why? The question we're focusing on is, why can God not eradicate sin by using might and power? That's what we're trying to reveal here. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. What did they not understand? The nature of sin, the fullness of God's law, and why sin results in death. They didn't understand it. Had Satan and his hosts then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds, an evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. Do you see God cannot eradicate sin by using power to kill sinners? He can't do it. Because it, it actually sustained first Satan's lie that God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering. And if he would just leave us alone, we can live eternally in sin, because sin doesn't hurt you, only God hurts you for it. And so the doubt of God's goodness remains. And he couldn't even let Satan and his angels reap the natural results of full separation from him back then, because the rest of the angels wouldn't have understood, and they would have doubted, and they thought God did it to them. And the Christian church is still teaching this lie that God is a source of pain and death. Monday's lesson, there's a bunch to get into in today's lesson. Um, Second paragraph. First, nowhere in Daniel's prayer is he asking for any kind of explanation for the calamities that happened to the Jewish people. He knows the reason. Indeed, the bulk of the prayer consists of Daniel himself recounting the reason. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, and walk in his laws, uh, which he set before his servants, the prophets. The last uh, time we left Daniel having a need of understanding something was in Daniel chapter 8, the vision of 2300. Um, Daniel knows his people were in captivity because they failed to stay faithful to God. But was that the full understanding of what's going on? Or something more at play? Were they simply, in other words, were they simply in captivity? They broke the rules. They weren't faithful. Therefore, time out in the corner you go. Is is that it? That's the whole understanding of what happened here. They broke the rules. God's putting them in time out, putting them in the corner. Or is there something more at play? First off, which law lens are you looking through? Do you see their captivity as God using his power to bring it on them and make it happen? That's imperialism. That's the imposed law view. Or do you see it as God withdrawing his power and letting them reap that which they chose? Yes? Maybe it's he's letting them go, but maybe they, they were supposed to be the light to the world. And so maybe this was another attempt to get them scattered so they could be the light to the world in a different way. So is God actively bringing these events about by the use of power, or are these events happening because he has restrained his use of power? So for instance, did was God forcing Nebuchadnezzar to become an invader? Nebuchadnezzar was really a peaceful man, a humble, kind person. He wanted to actually open humanitarian clinics around the region. <laughs> 
but God forced him to become an invader. Is that, I mean, is that how we see this? God is in control, and therefore God brought these events about by the use of power. Or, does God surrender the rebellious Israelites, or Judah in this case, the, the tribes there, surrender them and step back and say, okay, if you're going to go your own way, you're going to have to reap what comes without me there to, to look out for you for a while. What? Earlier in the lesson, you made the point that Daniel's a student of Scripture. And my first thought was he's also, he's not only a student of Scripture, but he's a student of science, and he's a student of reality and, and how his experience works. Daniel understood that, that God's hedge of protection was removed. And Babylon did what was natural to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar did what was natural to Nebuchadnezzar. And the Medes and Persians did what was natural to them. Okay, so Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 26, 9, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against the land and inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. If God didn't force Nebuchadnezzar, then what does this passage mean, that I will call my servant Nebuchadnezzar? How do we understand it? Well, did God know Nebuchadnezzar's heart, mind, character, aspirations, plans, dreams, wishes, longings? Did God know all these things about Nebuchadnezzar? Did God also know the hearts of the Judean leaders? Did God know the future? I believe he does. So God knew what Nebuchadnezzar was planning and going to do, now, God could have still acted if he had a faithful people like he did in the time of Hezekiah. He could have still acted with the angel of the Lord causing confusion among the ranks of the Babylonians like he did on 185,000 Assyrians. God could have acted to protect them had they been faithful and loyal. But they weren't. And so God says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to protect you because you don't want me. You want to do it your way. And this is what, this is what Neb's going to do. And so... Did God make a judgment? A judgment of what action was best for God to take? Intervene and protect, like with Assyria? Don't intervene and don't protect. Did God make a judgment? What's best? Yes, he did. And how do we understand God's judgments? And when I use that word judgment, what law lens are you looking through? If you use the word judgment under the imposed law lens, then God looked out and saw criminal behavior, violations against God's law, and the judge judged them as guilty, and there must be a punishment for guilty behavior, so God judges what the right punishment is, and so he brings and inspires Nebuchadnezzar to come over and rape and pillage and murder and kill and enslave and castrate and all kinds of stuff because they had to be punished. And that's God, imperial God, making them pay for their rebellion. That's, that's how you understand judgment under the imposed law lie. Under design law, though, you understand judgment is the accurate assessment of reality. I judge this is the condition of things. We might call that in the medical community diagnosis. This is my judgment. This is what's going on. And not only do we go beyond simply what is, we then make judgments from a heart that wants to heal. What is the best therapeutic intervention? What is most likely to bring healing? What do I need to do in governance of me to remedy this situation? I will bring a judgment to fix the process. And if we understand the great controversy, then we understand we're not reading about Daniel's events and these events in isolation. We're reading about these events in the stream of human history 
And this is critical, guys. If you miss this piece, you will miss much of the Old Testament. After Adam fell, Genesis 3, God promises Messiah to come. Without Messiah, the whole human race is gone. Only because of Jesus are any human beings going to be saved. Yes or no? And that's promised in Genesis 3. The rest of the Old Testament is the process of this battle operating. Satan is actively working to stop it. No way. I'm not going to let you bring a Messiah. I'm going to do everything I can. At one time in earth's history, there's only one righteous man left on the earth. Only one, Noah and his family. The rest of the earth, Satan has got to harden against God. And, and we see this process still playing out. And he's now, and this is why the focus of Scripture is the focus of Scripture. And why we're not focusing on China, not focusing on Africa, not focusing on North America. Because the purpose of Scripture is focusing on the great controversy and the bringing of the Messiah. And after the flood, it's Abraham's family. And, it's, and, then, it's, and then it's Isaac's family. And then, and then it's Jacob's family. And then it's all the way down to just Judah. That's who we're focusing on. Because that's where Messiah is coming. This is the action. And when we understand that, I have to make a judgment. You people are going after the Baals, the asterisks, the false gods. This is a violation of the law of worship. By beholding, you become changed. If you persist in this, your characters will become worthless. Your hearts will become hard. You will become self-centered. You will become alienated. You will become insensitive to the movement of the Spirit of God. There will not be an avenue for my, my son to come and save you. I judge this is a toxic situation. And so I send my prophets to you because you need to repent. And so I send messenger after messenger after messenger. Repent, repent, repent. Let me heal you. Let me resensitize. Let me take out the heart of stone. Let me put in the heart of flesh. This is all what the prophets are telling them. Let me fix the brokenness in you. Keep open the avenue for Messiah. Fulfill your mission for me. Be that light to the world. But they didn't. They, They persecuted the prophets. They rejected the messages. And so God said, then I judge in order to keep a remnant. It's going to be painful. I will remove my protective hand. And my servant Neb's going to come. And he's going to kill a bunch of you. He's going to take a bunch of you captive. But I will, instead of being able to protect the whole nation now, I will still protect those individuals who trust me. Shadrach, Meshach, Bendigo, Daniel, and others. Esther, Mordecai, and others were being protected as individuals. And that difficult time led them to greater commitment and connection to the Lord. And a remnant was saved, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the remnant that came back. And the avenue for Messiah was retained. Thus God judged what was needed for them. And this is what was prophesied to Daniel, the very thing to Daniel. The whole vision that Daniel's being told about is 490 years the focus is on the coming Messiah. That's what's 490 years and the Messiah is going to come. In the middle of the last year, he's going to do away with all this, this, the, this symbolic stuff. And he's going to make the remedy for sin. But then a counterattack is going to come from the evil one. And, and little horn power is going to set himself up in God's temple uh, that Paul expands on later. It'll be 2,300 more years, 2,300 years until the temple can be cleansed. In, um, I, I do want to at least c- catch a couple things in Tuesday's lesson. In uh, the first paragraph, it says, Daniel's prayer is that one among... uh, 
Daniel's prayer is just one among other significant intercessory prayers contained in the Bible. Such prayers touch God's heart, staving off judgment and bringing deliverance from the uh, from enemies. When God is um, ready to destroy the entire Jewish nation, the intercession of Moses stays his hand. Even when severe drought is about to consume the land, God answers Elijah's prayer and pours out rain to revive the land. Okay. Hopefully some alarm bells were going off in your head here. This entire paragraph is what you get when you go to the scripture with the idea that God's law works like human law. And therefore God is a heavenly magistrate. God is the one who brings stuff. God has to have somebody plead with him. We have to have an attorney, an advocate, an intercessor. This is all corrupt. Let me tell you what it really means. Judgment here is used as imperialism. God's plan is not to adjust uh, recording of historical facts throughout the universe, but to actually remove sin from sinners. That's what he wants to do. He wants to heal hearts and minds. And so, why if a prayer of intercession before God, if, God, if people pray to God as a, a, a threat is pending, I'll give you a couple examples. And they pray to God, and the disaster is staved off. Why would that be the case? What would stave off? God was pled with with enough of a of a of a valuable resource uh, that it it influenced him. Oh, you know, I hadn't seen that much gold in a while. Okay, no. What does the prayer of intercession do to the people? brings them to repentance. And once they repent, then there's no need for the pending disaster, i.e. Nineveh. Look at Nineveh. They repented. But the prayer of intercession does not always work because there's not always repentance. Sodom and Gomorrah. Did Abraham intercede with God? How about if there's 50, 40, 30? How about just 10? Is Abraham interceding? And is God willing? God doesn't want to, is there any evidence God actually wants to destroy these people? Why did Sodom and Gomorrah, if, if we've got an intercessory, we have the prayers of a righteous man that avails much. We have Abraham, the father of the righteous, praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's interceding. Was it just not enough? God needed more. Then why didn't it work? Why was Sodom and Gomorrah still killed? Because there were no righteous there. There was no hearts uh, sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. There was nobody healable. There was nobody capable of responding. They were all permanently hardened. And so God put them to sleep very quickly. There's no suffering. It was instantaneous. There would have been no even awareness that it happened to them. It would be like a nuclear bomb goes off in here. We'd be vaporized. We wouldn't even know it happened to us until at the resurrection. we go, what happened? Oh, you were vaporized in the nuclear. Like, really? I had no idea. Okay? That's what happened to Samantha. There was no suffering. And he'd also use it as an object lesson that Peter tells about later, that the wicked in the end will not suffer for all eternity. They stand as an evidence of what happens to the wicked in the end. They won't be suffering for all eternity. But what about Moses, intercession of Moses? God's going to destroy Israel. Moses pleads, God doesn't. They say, oh, here it is. Moses intercedes, God destroy. Let me ask you a few questions. Think through this. Did, does God know the end from the beginning? Did God know 
that when he told Moses what he was going to, that he was going to wipe out Israel, did God already know how Moses was going to respond? Did God already know how he was going to respond to Moses' response? Yes. So was there ever actually any intention on God's part to destroy Israel? I'm going to say, uh, it's, like, it's like, I'm going to say I'm going to destroy Israel. Moses is going to say, please don't take me out of the book. And I'm going to say, okay, I won't. So was there ever, if he knows that, he knows that, he knows he wasn't going to, then why would he do it? Evidence. Yes, evidence of what? To who? Of Moses' dramatic character transfer. Bingo. Who's watching this? The Bible tells us angels long to look into these things. What's transpiring in heaven? You can see in the book of Job that Satan's popping up and down, still trying to sow seeds of discourse, still trying to misrepresent God. And now we've just had Israel delivered as uh, at the ten plagues, the walking through the Red Sea and dry ground and so forth, and the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And now they're worshiping a golden calf. And what do you think the angels in heaven are going? And Satan is probably saying, see, good, look, guys, I mean, you know, it's, it's not working. He's lying to you. It, 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 it doesn't work. And so God says, I think, I think my friends up here, it, it's, it's okay. They, they deserve some encouragement to know my methods of truth presented in love, leaving people free, really do work. Moses at age 40, what was his main achievement at age 40? Murder. He murdered an overseer. He's a murderer. He's willing to use power over others to kill to get his way. That's Satan's method at age 40. His heart is not yet right with God. He's still infected with that disease of sin. But at age 80, I'm going to wipe out all these people. I'm going to start over with you. Your family will be the kingdom and the throne will come from your family, Moses. Now, for most of us earthly folks, think what that appeals to. But Moses now says, oh no, far be it. Not, not just put me to sleep and raise me at the rest. Take my name out of the Lamb's book of life. I'll give up my eternal life to save these people. And he, God looks to the angels in heaven and says, see, I told you my methods work. Those who walk with me and spend time with me, they are transformed where they love others more than self. And these are they, Revelation chapter 12, 11, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Moses was a changed man. And this, you see, and you say, well, why would he need to do this? Can angels read hearts and minds? If they could, would any of them been deceived by Lucifer? They could look right in and see. They would have been deceived. They can't read hearts and minds. Only God can. And so this was an opportunity that God called Moses to reveal by action, the transformation of heart. So this was never Moses working on God to get God to change his way. This was God calling on Moses to have Moses show how his heart had changed. Beautiful. And then what about the Elijah one that they mentioned? This one is even more irritating to me. It really is. Understand what's transpiring here, folks. Understand what is transpiring here. Why was there three and a half years of famine? Why? Who were they worshiping? And Baal was the god of weather who brought the harvest and brought the rain. They're worshiping and sacrificing to Baal. Their queen is Jezebel. Okay? She's the daughter of Baal. She honors Baal. That's her name. Okay? And so they're worshiping the false god. And Elijah, the prophet of the true god, says, there'll be no rain. Your god's powerless. This was the whole point. Bring the nation to thirst. Not just thirst for water, thirst for their God. Bring them to thirst. 
And after three and a half years, when Elijah prays, is Elijah praying to intercede with God who's punishing the people? Or is Elijah God's spokesman, God's prophet, God's agent, God's man to lead the people out of false worship and to recognize God? So, so God needs Elijah to pray, not to influence God, but to enlighten the people that the intervention is coming from Yahweh, not from Baal. He needed the voice of Elijah so the people would know it's Yahweh who's acting here. This wasn't intercession to get Yahweh to act. This was intercession to get the people to reject Baal. If God is like Baal, worship him. He's like Yahweh, worship him. So this use here, it's quite irritating because it misrepresents God. This goes back to what we started class on today. Christian community is infected with Satan's view of God, and we have failed like the Jewish people failed to tell the truth about God, and we're delayed. And God is waiting for a people to stand up and take that message of the three angels to the world, an eternal gospel about who God is, calling people back to make a right judgment about God and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. And I I guess we're going to have to call it there. Some other interesting things in the lesson that just we're not going to get to. I actually wanted, should I go? Because I wanted to get to the prophecy and the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, 24. Should I go through it real quick? And the Wednesday's lesson looks at the prophecy of Daniel 9, 24. This is a famous prophecy and it reads... Seventy-sevens are decreed to your people and to the holy city to finish or restrain transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And we're just going to go through these those points. I think there's like six of them really quick. To finish transgression. When you hear finish transgression, what law lens you're looking through? Always come back. What law lens? Imperial law, well, that means he's paying a penalty. Oh, design law, he's fixing the problem. That's, what, that's, that's the big difference. He's actually taking... You know, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's substitution. People will allege, Jennings doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement. That's not true. He's our substitute, but for the purpose of what Scripture teaches, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not this fraudulent thing that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. No, we get to, be, we get to become righteous through what Jesus has done for us. So he finished transgression. Next paragraph, to make an end to sins... Um, again, do you look at this as a legal counting mechanism and record books in heaven? Or do you see him as the second Adam, tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin? Which way do you see it? Well, I see it. It says in Hebrews 5.9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And character cannot be created by God. It's developed by the choices of the intelligent being. And so Jesus, as a human being, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet as he chooses love every time, truth every time, loyalty to God every time, he develops a sinless human character. Thus, he becomes the source of salvation for all who obey him. Uh, Three, uh, to make reconciliation or atone for wickedness. What does this mean? Again, which law lends? Atone, pay legal penalty, or to take what is out of harmony and put back into at-one-ment, to bring back into unity. And thus, he takes humanity, broken off and damaged by Adam's actions, and carries it to perfection and brings humanity back into unity with God. I have a quote we're going to have to skip. Uh, Four, to bring everlasting righteousness. How? What does this mean? Do you remember the quote, Desire of Age 762? The law requires 
Righteousness, not a payment. Righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. Uh, We cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ came to earth as a man and lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. And five, uh, to seal up the vision and the prophecy. What does this mean? It means to fulfill and confirm it, to actually bring it to conclusion, to actually achieve what was told he was going to achieve. He did it, and once it's done, it's sealed. It's over. It's history. And then six, this is a little controversial, to anoint, anoint the most holy. What does this mean? There's two interpretations. The vast majority of Christian community and Jew, Jewish scholars believe the most holy is referring to the Messiah. Christians think it's Jesus, Jews, the Messiah yet to come, but, but to anoint the Messiah. Uh, Adventist scholars um, actually take a position that is talking about the heavenly sanctuary, that he's anointing the most holy place in the building in heaven. And they take that position um, because they suggest that this term um, most holy is not used to uh, um, attach to a, a person except in one place, in one place, it refers to Aaron, but every other place, it's, it's objects. And because they say the context of this prophecy is, starts back in, in Daniel 8, which was the sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed. And because of those two reasons, they say, well, this must be the sanctuary in heaven. The problem with that, though, is, in fact, the Bible does refer, reference this same Hebrew to Aaron in one place, the high priest. But more important to me is the actual context of the text. If you actually read the context of Daniel 9, 24 and 25, let's read both verses and just see what you think. 77s are decreed to your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to bring an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Next verse. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. So it's going to be this long until they anoint the most holy, and the very next verse say there's an anointed one, the ruler coming. It seems to me that the context is actually more immediate. It's not the whole 2300-day prophecy. The context in both verses is about the 77s, the 490-year context. And in the 490-year context, it is anointing the one who was the anointed one. It says it in the verse. Ellen White alludes to this in Desire of Ages, page 234, after she quotes that very verse in Daniel, she says the following. The time of Christ's coming, his anointing by the Holy Spirit, his death and the giving of the gospel to the Gentiles were definitely pointed out in this prophecy. So she alludes to that in, in mentioning the anointing by the Holy Spirit. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your incredible love, the truth about your character, your methods and principles. And we ask that your uh, spirit will empower us to take this message to the world. Bring more people along who love the truth about your character and are willing to share it with others that we can lighten the world and see you coming soon. Fulfill your promises and bring us home to the new Jerusalem. We pray in your holy name. Amen.